we begin today uh, another chapter in our journey through the book of Acts, and uh, been assigned to Acts uh, fifteen thirty six through sixteen. Uh, quite a few verses, but uh, you know, one I'd like to begin by saying one of the great uh, doctrines of Christianity. Something that A.W. Criswell stated was the cardinal of all. It's the doctrine of salvation. And um, it's a doctrine many of here, you here can probably uh, give a, a great dissertation on, or you have knowledge of, and those zooming in, the same thing. Um, it's the wonderful gift of salvation. And my, uh, I would hope that by the end of the message this morning, that we might uh, have a reaffirmation uh, of our faith and belief in the adequacy, but more importantly, the sufficiency sufficiency of the one who saved us, and that's the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look through the back book of Acts, it's laden with examples of the gospel going forth, of souls being saved, of cities and countries being evangelized. I think it's one of the key themes throughout the entire book. So as we walk through the book of Acts, as we've been covering this summer, we're going to come across a familiar story about one self, uh, a person's salvation. But I really like to introduce this message this morning by talking about something that came to mind uh, in preparing the message, and that was questions. Uh, the thought about questions, 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 and how questions lead to other questions. Now, if you've ever been around children, little children, or grandchildren, you know that uh, they become inquisitive at one point of the world around them or the people that they they see and the places and just things in general. And what happens is that they have questions and questions. And we all are familiar with uh, the why stage and you better be prepared to answer those questions or you're going to get uh, some more questions. I mean, many more questions. So, and life is um, filled with questions, but it's also filled with answers. Uh, I like to say not always, but there's answers too. So life is filled with questions and answers, questions and answers. Um, unless you're watching Jeopardy, then it's answers and questions. Um, so that's a, it's a little different. And some questions are rather mundane. Uh, they're rather ordinary, uh, you know, very ordinary. You know, what's the weather forecast for tomorrow? Um, what time is it? Uh, how much does that cost? Um, and I always liked the questions the kids would ask when we were on our way to vacation. It was, uh, when are we leaving? And once they're in the car, are we there yet? And uh, when we're leaving from vacation, it was always, can't we stay a little longer? I guess you understand how that is. And then there's some questions that are a little more serious. Like what time is the surgery or... Will you marry me? And Doctor, how much time does she have? Those are serious questions. But uh, but is there a uh, ultimate question? Is there a um, is there one that is the greatest question of all? The most important question that you can ask in this life. Well, today we get to see and read about a person who actually asked that question and received the answer. And so before we do that, um, might we uh, just, if you have your Bible, if you could open it up to uh, 
book of Acts in chapter 15, starting with verse 36, and uh, we'll just read some passages as it related to that. And this is uh, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, it starts with the situation between Paul and Barnabas, actually. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had continued with them in the work and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. He came to Derbe and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, and so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they traveled from town to town, They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After all, Paul had seen the vision. We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And from Troas, we put out uh, to sea, we sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day onto Neapolis, and from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. And on that Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited them to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded them. She's persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl with a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. And when the owners of the slave girl realized that the hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. And when they were brought before the magistrates, 
and, uh, and, and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating the customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they were severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, and he set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Uh, Let's go have a word of prayer. Our God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for your blessings upon the reading, hearing of your word, Lord, most importantly for the application of your word. So we just ask, Father, for the next several minutes, if you would just uh, uh, hide away some of the things that concern us in this world, and we just focus in on what you'll have us to know about you. Again, we thank you and give you praise and honor for it. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen. So, quite a few incidents there, and I'd like to uh, take them apart one by one, if that's okay. Um, uh, Ricardo, thank you for leaving a lot of minutes on the table from last week, so I plan to use them. So, but uh, in Acts 15, uh, 36, it begins Paul's second missionary journey. Now, on your way out, I left a copy of a, of a map of the second missionary journey. Um, I highlighted Philippi in, in, uh, in yellow for you. It's a little bit hard to follow, but you might get an idea about this second missionary journey, and they're on the table back there. And the reason why I didn't give them to you now is because you'll just keep looking at the map and not hearing what I'm saying. So... Uh, as a former teacher and administrator, school administrator, I know what that's like. Believe me, I would give out the uh, notes of uh, the agenda of my meeting sometimes, and teachers weren't listening to what I was saying. They were just looking at what I had written. So uh, so if you could just take that on the way out, or just for your own uh, uh, growth and knowledge. Um, here's a quote from Warren Wearsbury. He says, for the Apostle Paul, the church at Antioch was not a parking lot. It was a launching pad. He never settled down to a comfortable ministry anywhere as long as there was an open door. And so Paul, as we just read, suggested it was time uh, to visit the churches and the assemblies that began on his first missionary journey. Uh, Progress and growth was one of the characteristics of of the Apostle Paul, interested in the progress and growth of all the assemblies and the churches along the way. And this is probably around 49 AD. It's springtime, uh, which was 
rather conducive for travel. It's uh, favorable weather at that time. We read about this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas involving John Mark. Uh, It's uh, interesting to note that John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas and spoke up for him. Um, But they had a falling out, inability to compromise even, and both men were used to spread the gospel. Um, Probably Paul more more so because we read about Paul throughout the scripture. Uh, So Barnabas takes Mark to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas. They head for uh, Syria and Cilicia. And um, it just goes to show you that, you know, we have our human frailties. Uh, Sometimes our pride gets in the way, our short-sightedness of things. But God's work isn't going to stop. He's going to use men and women to do what he needs to do to get the gospel to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, as the scripture says. Um, It was interesting to find out later on that John Mark, who Paul didn't have a lot of faith in, became a faithful servant of God. In fact, Paul would speak warmly about him. You could find that in Colossians 4, verse 10. And later he wrote warmly about Barnabas too. You could find that in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. So despite they have that falling out, you know, there's obviously some, some warm feelings for each other. And in verse 40 of chapter 15, if you're looking in your Bible, it says, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, why was that put in there? I think it was put, put in there because one of the things I read about is that Paul was not a freelance missionary. He just didn't get up and do what he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. And though he was commissioned by the Lord, he did not act in isolation. Um, he wasn't totally independent uh, from his brethren. And like all missionaries, he needed support. He needed prayers. He needed fellowship. And so this came on the heels of this disagreement between Paul and, um, and Barnabas. And so he needed the reassurance that the brothers uh, had confidence in him. The brethren had confidence in him uh, in sending him and Silas to where they were going to go. In fact, Scripture does says, and they were to the grace, to the grace of God. So, so now he has Silas with him. And Silas is, um, a couple of words about Silas. Silas uh, could speak Greek which would be important in where they were going. He was a prophet. We saw that in chapter 15, verse 32. He's a member of the church of Jerusalem, and he had knowledge of some of the things, the ongoings, the decrees, if you will, that took place in the Council of Jerusalem, which we talked about last week in chapter 15. And like Paul, and this will prove vital later on, I didn't, we didn't read the rest of the chapter, but he was a Roman citizen. And so that was very important. So he travels with uh, Paul to Syria and Cilicia. They visited the churches. They provided support, encouragement, guidance, prayer, counsel, uh, all those things that were needed for growing churches and assemblies. So he was a valuable asset. And then a new worker comes on board, which we read, Timothy, a uh, Jewish mother, Jewish grandmother, a Jewish mom. I think her name was Lois. The grandmother was Eunice, I believe. Uh, Greek father. Um, but both women kind of educated Timothy in the scriptures. Uh, they laid down a f- foundation for his faith, and he was saved in chapter 14. We see that. You might say that he was raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord by his uh, mother and grandmother. And uh, so he was called by Paul to, and chosen to, by Paul to serve on the team. In fact, Paul called him my beloved son, my son in the faith. 
Uh, he was circumcised. He didn't have to be, especially after what had taken place in the Council of Jerusalem. He didn't have to be, but he did so. Uh, Paul did circumcise Timothy because he didn't want that to be a stumbling block to the Jews when he had to minister to the Jews because they knew he, he had a, a, a Greek father. Uh, he plays an important role in spreading the gospel. In fact, um, Timothy was with Paul just before he was martyred in Rome. Uh, you can look at that up in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, so later on, another member of the team joins. In verse 10, we read that when they were at Troas, Luke. Now take a look at this missionary team. If you just look at it, I call it the A-team. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. All right, those are real, uh, those are strong leaders, strong uh, men in the faith. They travel through Phrygia and Galatia, not Asia, as we read. Um, they buy, uh, pass by My- Mycenae and Bithynia because they were, Paul was directed by the Holy Spirit. And, of course, that's how he uh, eventually gets to Troas, where he has this vision. And uh, God, uh, the Holy Spirit, spoke through uh, visions often in, in Acts. We, we have witnessed it a few times already. And um, he has this direct divine call from this vision. And in verse 10, it says, we, we and that's what uh, Luke is now is the writer of Acts. And he's, of course, now he's talking about the group now, the, the missionary team. We use that, uh, that pronoun. He says, we were ready. We got ready at once to leave for Mycenae. At once. Um, it shows Paul's reliance on the sovereignty of God. Um, God has the power and the freedom to withhold and and to give grace to whoever he pleases and whenever he pleases. And I think it's a great example for us to follow whenever God leads us into a certain area. Uh, do we leave at once? Do we leave at once? When you take a look at the map that I've left out for you, you'll see several places that Paul and Silas and the A-team uh, went on the, uh, on, their second, on their second missionary journey. Places uh, crossing Neapolis, they get to Philippi, but they've gone to other places. Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, um, Athens, Ephesus, Caesarea. And in fact, they get all the way up to Jerusalem, and then they go back down to Antioch from where they started. So I hope you, you get an idea of what that was like. And they arrived in Philippi in Macedonia, uh, which was named actually for Philip of Macedon. Now, if you remember your Western civilization history, um, he was the father of Alexander the Great. And Philippi is not only a city, it's a colony. Now, a colony was granted special privileges by the Roman government because of services that they would give to the, to the empire. Um, the emperor actually organized uh, these colonies with many uh, Roman citizens, especially those who were retired military um, to live in these selected areas. And what, why? Well, this would ensure a rather very strong pro-Roman presence in strategic areas of the Roman Empire. Um, one writer called it, uh, Philippi was Rome away from Rome. So if you were a free man and not a slave, and it, uh, you were regarded as of being a Roman citizen in Macedonia, and you were entitled to citizenship in Rome, and you were expected to be a loyal subject of the Roman Empire, you were expected to give honor and allegiance to the, to the emperor, but you had all the rights and privileges of being a Roman 
citizen in a foreign land. And here's the other perk for going to those areas. The perk was, the political privilege was, you didn't have to pay Roman taxes. And we know how burdensome that Roman tax could be. So as one commentator stated, and I I thought it was interesting how he stated this, he he thought that Paul dwelt on that kind of a relationship uh, later on in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3. And he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. As we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so it will be like his glorious body. I don't have to remind you of the world we live in. It's a uh, fallen world. It's a perverse world. And uh, we're here for a short time. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that our, our real citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven and have all the privileges of being a rightful citizen of heaven. We read also later on about the, one of the first converts, uh, maybe the first convert in Europe, and that was Lydia. Uh, God led Paul to Europe, uh, not Asia, and when he arrives, there's no hero welcome. There are not throngs of people waiting for Paul. And so what he does, he waits on the Holy Spirit of, of where he should start and um, when he should start and to whom he should speak. And what Paul would do when he went to a city, normally he would enter a synagogue to speak and to talk to people. Uh, but there is no synagogue here. And so what he does, he goes outside the city gates, he goes to a river, and he starts to minister to a group of women. Um, now, I, I found something, and I, I thought that was kind of interesting, is that uh, the rabbis didn't consider giving the word to the, to the women at all. In fact, I, one of the verses, I, I'll quote this, it says, the words of the law be burned, then delivered to a woman. So to give you an idea of what they thought of them. Now, I could just see all the women out there with a little cloud over their head with the you know, word, what, with an exclamation point and a question mark there. So uh, obviously, I, I watched a lot of cartoons as a kid. So, um, but the, one of the women there was Lydia. Now, Lydia is, Lydia is a Gentile. Um, she's not a full Jewish proselyte. In other words, she didn't fully accept the religion of Judaism, if you will. But the Bible, as we just read, was a, she was a worshiper of God, and she worshiped with the Jews. But she's from Thyatira, a leading city that produced purple dye. And she's a businesswoman who sells that and other things, cloths and things of that nature. It's a responsible position. I, I, I think it was probably well paid. Um, but it was interesting. Paul wanted to go to Asia, and Thyatira is in Asia. Uh, and he was not sent there, but yet a person from Asia comes to him. So, but she was um, a rather, she was a truth seeker, pious, obviously a worshiper of God and intelligent to be uh, given the responsibility of, of, of conducting business. So, but what happens? The Lord opens up her heart. Paul gives her a message and she opens up her heart and she believes. She trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation. Now, I wish I could say it was that easy for me, um, but in the time past, I was a little deaf to the, to the gospel. I was too blinded by the world system to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and understand the light of the gospel. Uh, it was actually in an August day, uh, like a very sultry August day, that really hit me that the Lord wanted me to come to him. 
I didn't get saved that time, but I sure, sure was convicted. Um, the preaching was there. Uh, the reaching wasn't. My heart was not ready for it. But eventually God gave me spiritual ears. I'm sure this is something that you can probably relate to also. Um, he gave me spiritual ears to hear and godly eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And this is what happened with Lydia. She's saved, and then she's baptized. Now, baptism is a public confession or demonstration of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she did that. She's, uh, it's an outward identification of the one who saved her. And uh, not just her, but it seems, as we read, all the members of our household too. And what does she do next? She opens up her home and uh, practices, uh, we would say, the, uh, the gift of hospitality. She's saved and then she serves. Now, if you go back to chapter 9, you see how dramatic Paul was uh, saved. Um, this is not very dramatic, is it? But yet it's just as powerful because the soul is saved. And, uh, you know, we all come one way. I, I can't help but think many times, how many times I've heard uh, messages by Dr. Billy Graham. And one of the things I remember him saying, he said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's how we come. Um, John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has passed from death to life. And that's exactly what happened with Lydia right here. Later on, we read about an incident. It's an incident that eventually will place Paul and Silas in a Philippian prison. And it involves this demon-possessed girl, this slave girl. And she's speaking under the control of a demonic spirit. And one of the things in preparing the message, uh, many believe that she was under the spirit of Python, which was a god associated with giving oracles. And as a result, people went to her for life matters. They business matters, all kinds of things. And they paid handsomely for it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we have, you know, many who go to fortune tellers and tarot card readers and clairvoyants and participate in seances, seances and the like. That happens today. But Paul and his missionary team continue their work, and they go back to the place of prayer near the river, obviously, and uh, the girl continued to follow them. And for many days, she shouted this. We just read it in chapter 16, verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? It's true, they were. But in addressing this uh, and saying this, she's actually addressing two cu cultures at the same time within that city, the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews use that same term, the most high God. That described the Lord. But so did the Greeks. They used the most high God to describe Zeus. So which is it? Well, eventually, Paul had enough. We read that. He was troubled. And he cast a demon out of her. And what is, what is this then? This is Satan's attempt to patronize the gospel. He can't stop the word of the Lord. He can't stop the work of the Lord. He's powerless to do so. But he sure can put some roadblocks up, and he can hinder it. And so Satan can speak the truth on one, in one minute, and at the same time, and a minute later, speak an untruth, a lie. And what does that do? It just keeps people from receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and getting the truth. For his name is the name above all names. And one day, every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess that he is Lord and Lord of all. 
So once he casts out this demon, and we read by the authority in the name of Jesus Christ, she's out of this catatonic state. She's no longer demonic, if you will. Um, She's come to her senses, but this angers the owners, her masters. That cash cow that they had is no longer in service, and they're out of business. And so what do they do? Oh, they're angry. They bring Paul before the magistrates. We read that. And what do they do? They drag him to the, mat, to the marketplace. And there's three things that happened here, which I thought were interesting. The first thing is they call them Jews, Paul and Silas and the team, not Christians. A little bit of anti-Semitism here, I believe, because Jews were not received very well because of their religious practices. The second thing is that they said that the other accusations, they disturbed the peace. Bible says in 1620, Acts, they threw the city into an uproar. Interesting. Wasn't the Lord Jesus accused of the same thing? Look it up. Luke 23, verse 5. He was also accused of of causing an uproar in the city. And then finally, and and the third thing is, it says they, they brought unlawful customs for us Romans to accept and practice. I think this shows... Luke's giving us a rather plain explanation of how vehement and how incensed the world becomes when they want to reject Christ. The devil hates the gospel. He hates the work of the Lord, and he'll use anything and anyone to hinder it and to stop it. Consider these words from John Calvin. John Calvin, being foolish and fickle, is common to all peoples, but Satan's extraordinary power is seen in the way otherwise modest and quiet people flare up over nothing and join the worst characters when God's truth is to be resisted. You might recall these words, crucify him, crucify him, when only days before they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Foolishness. Yes, that's the crowd. So the magistrates who played a a rather authoritative role and a key role over the people, they could have brought a sense of calm to this situation. They could have, this was hostile situation here. Uh, They didn't choose to do that. But what they did do was they rushed to judgment. Oh, how often have we seen that over the last few years? The rush to judgment. Paul and Silas, were they... Did they get their due process? Were they allowed to give an opportunity to clear their name? Were they, could they even be heard from? No, absolutely not. And I want you to think of these four things, these four words, if you will. Uh, um, they all start with an S. What happens next? Stripped, stripes, stern orders, and stocks. They all begin with S. They were stripped. They were severely flogged and given many stripes on their backs. They were thrown into the inner cell of a prison. The Philippian jailer got stern orders from the magistrates what to do with them and make sure they don't escape. So he put them in stocks. Can you imagine adding insult to injury already? They're in a maximum security prison. It's a deep, dark, dirty, and damp place. In a prison without a a tiny window to see a ray of sunshine or a a cloud painted uh, against a, a blue sky. That's not happening. 
back's bleeding and great pain. Given the treatment probably for the most hardened criminal. Satan, you can't think about Satan. He must have been giddy. He must have been in such glee over the fact that Paul and Silas are in this condition, probably coupled with the thought that he may have stopped and successfully uh, Paul's ministry. But we look at the remaining verses of chapter 16. We witness another verse. A person is about to come to salvation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, up to this time, there's some other incidents, and I'd like to read about them, of others who have uh, been saved. Chapter 8, we learned about the Ethiopian eunuch, a black man from Africa. Paul of Tarsus, a religious Jew. Cornelius in chapter 10, a Gentile centurion. And we just read about Lydia, a woman, a successful businesswoman. Now, Another soul was about to be saved. Now, I didn't do that. Uh, I'm not identifying them as a form of identity politics. What I am saying is that if you review who they are, Paul brought that up during the breaking of bread and read those verses from Colossians. God does not show favoritism. All can be saved. Peter talked about that in chapter 10, verse 34, when he was talking about the Gentiles being saved. And so what I'm saying is that these are people from different races, different backgrounds, different genders, two, not 32 like we have today, from lost sinners into saved souls. They might be have different economic backgrounds, different cultures, even different religion. Paul was a Jew and, and a, a, a fervent believer in Judaism. But they're all changed. They're all transformed. They're all new creations. These were lost sinners who are now saved. They're saved souls, and they're bound for heaven. The Holy Spirit helped a tender soul in Lydia. We saw how um, this tormented soul was no longer uh, possessed. And now we have this jailer, and he's a tough soul, somebody different. Exploring Acts, John Phillips' words, Nothing short of an earthquake and the prospect of immediate death, along with the quality of life, infinitely superior to anything he had ever known, would reject this man. His life is about never to be the same again. Now, we're not told who is the jailer. We're not told what his name is. But these positions in jails were relegated to many retired military men, military soldiers, Roman soldiers. Um, these are usually the hardened veterans who participated, who witnessed in the travails of war, where pain and suffering were commonplace. And uh, these kinds of things would have no or little effect on him. There are also people who are responsible. They know how to follow orders and can be trusted to follow orders. So when the magistrates told them, don't let them escape, he put them in the stocks. Believe me, he was following his duty. Place these prisoners in the inner cell? No problem. Beaten with sufferings and sufferings from their wounds? No problem. I've seen worse. Besides, you probably deserved your punishment. The lictors did a good job on you. The lictors were the ones who doled out the, the, the punishment, usually with a, a, a combination of a bunch of rods that they had tied together. Um, you'll get no sympathy from me, this jailer is probably saying. In fact, you've got no chance of escape probably add a little psychological 
warfare on them too. Now, if you were in that predicament, I know if I was in that predicament, I don't know what I would have been thinking. I certainly would have been lamenting my condition. Uh, not beyond cursing the jailer. Questions would come up. I'm talking about questions. Is there any way of escape? Can I bribe a guard? Perhaps God will send 10,000 avenging angels and I'll be free. Well, look what Paul and Silas do. Look what they do. They pray. They sing praises to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom they were saved. And let's not forget the prisoners. All right? They heard this too. The jailer heard this too. What a testimony to the jailers and the prisoners alike. Could you imagine their reactions? Astonishment? Amazement? I'm sure. Think about their questions. Are you too insane? Weren't you given many stripes on your back? Perhaps the pains made you delirious. Why the joy? Why the peace? Where is this rejoicing coming from? It's a powerful witness. It's reminded that our, our behavior is always on display if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. And throughout the book of Acts, and we've studied this as we've been studying this series, we've witnessed how the gospel has gone out. The good news of Jesus Christ has gone forth to different lands and many peoples. And here's Paul and Silas in a prison. You're thinking that's the last place you could probably witness to, and yet they do. They took oppression and turned it into an opportunity. You can't help but what they were thinking as they were ministering, if you will, singing and praying to the other jailers and to the other guards and inmates. Maybe one of their prayers, maybe they followed the, the pattern of the prayer that the Lord had on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a midnight prayer and praise meeting in the most unlikely place. But I bet the acoustics were really great there, though, and that down there. I bet you they were. That's where they really heard them. Then at midnight, Paul and Silas, while they're praying, God responds. I almost wanted to say God shows up. No. I mean, he's there the whole time. And there's this violent earthquake. It shakes the foundation of the, pri- of the prison. God is revealing his power. I found this little quote. It said, the God who made the earth can shake the earth. And the prison doors are wide open. And the chains fall off the prisoners. August Finn Ryan had this to say about that. Interesting, interesting comment. He said, it takes a special earthquake to arouse sinners to their need to wake them up to the fearful danger and the doom that lies ahead. Such moral earthquakes happen every day. And so we get to this fifth and rather dramatic uh, conversion, if you will, unlike Lydia's. So who's the real prisoner here? The real prisoner is the jailer. Because he's locked in a prison of his sins, of unbelief and indifference. But God can open up those doors, and he does, in more ways than one, He can loose the chains of sin that keep one captive, and he can free any of us from the burden of sin that weighs us down. So after seeing and realizing what has happened, the jailer has already accepted his fate. We read that. He's responsible for the security of the prison, of the prison, and every prisoner there under his watch. Failure to do so, that would be a death sentence to him. And so another prisoner would probably uh, have welcomed such a fate, 
But Paul was no ordinary prisoner, was he? He shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all here in this pitch black uh, area, uh, point in time. Now, can you imagine the jailer's reaction? A second from ending his life. He calls for the lights. He rushes in and he trembles. Now, I personally believe he's not trembling because of the earthquake. I think he's under conviction. It's the Holy Spirit that's now convicted him. He's under conviction. It's the fear of the Lord. He's heard Paul and Silas. He heard the message of the gospel. And I think the jailer, no doubt, starts to come to his spiritual senses. He's awakened from his sleep of unbelief and indifference. And here's the ultimate question. Is there an ultimate question in this life? Here it is. And it's asked by this hardened ex-military man, if you will, of all people. Sirs, notice the respect there. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, God, through the Apostle Paul, was speaking in the darkness, and he saved his life. And now, during the light of day, if you will, the light's on, he's about to save his soul. What must I do to be saved? It's an age-old question, is it not? It's something that the human race has probably asked since uh, the fall in the garden of Adam. What must I do to be saved? How do I get right with God? I think it's a cry for help, is it not? In the sea, um, people are drowning in a sea of sin. They're lost in the wilderness of this world. How do I get right with God? What must I do to be saved? And he gives the answer. Life's greatest question has a simple answer. It's not a complex, multi-stepped answer. Believe. Believe. Not in a value system, not in a creed, not in some ritual, not in baptism, not in good works, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him who is mighty to save. And I'll take a look at the words, Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Lord, the supreme one, Jesus, the saving one, Christ, the all-sufficient one, and you will be saved in your household. And he follows up, Paul, we're speaking the word to him and the rest of the household. And the jailer's saved. And he transitions, if you will. Think about what has happened here. He transitions from suicide to salvation and then service. He starts to wash the wounds of Paul and Silas. This tough, callous jailer is now tending to their physical needs after Paul had tended to his spiritual needs. And then he provides them with a meal. And then he gets baptized. So think of that transition from suicide to salvation, from salvation to service, from service to baptism. It's a dramatic conversion. One writer said he was a heathen at sunset, but a Christian at sunrise. Filled with all the audio visuals that God had given with the earthquake. And that's how he came to Christ. He's born again powerful testimony of the love of God. None of us are all lost. None of us. We all can come to the Savior. And again, you know, there was this wonderful singing, I think, that took place in that Philippian jail. You can't help but think that there was wonderful singing of the angels in heaven when this Philippian jailer was saved. What must I do to be saved? That question, uh, there's three important aspects of that question. First, that there is a need for salvation. There's a need because, because everyone needs to be saved. 
everyone from the penalty of sin and from the penalty of death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our brother, the other, our brother last week talked about how that verse hit home with him. It's turned his life around. I actually, I've said it more than one time. That was the exact verse that hit me on that August day in this black macadam of a, of a hundred, over a hundred degrees. When I was working a summer job in the Port Elizabeth, there it was when these brothers were ministering to me. Sharing the gospel. In fact, one of the one of the guys' things was Rocco of all people. You can't make that up. There was none righteous, no, not one. And as a result, we need saving from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the words of and sin is nothing to trifle with. In the words of Chuck Swindoll, and I love this. Sin can take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. It can cost you more than you're willing to pay. One day we're going to be delivered from that very presence of sin. When the Lord returns, when the mort- our mortality puts on immortality, when our, the corruptible is set aside and we receive the incorruptible, new bodies like our glorious Lord, the very presence of sin will cease then. The second thing, there's an answer. There's a remedy to that question. What must I do to be saved? Some may say that the answer lies within every man or woman. Become a church member, they'll say. Uh, give to charitable organizations, they'll say. Do the best you can. It'll all work out, they'll say. Attend a weekly service, they'll say. Um, participate in the sacraments. Take Holy Communion, they'll say. The Bible has another answer about all that. We're all lost. William McDonald said, we're lost, we're helpless, we're hopeless, and hellbound. We're incapable of saving ourselves, but the Lord Jesus can save us. He is the way to truth and a life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. It's for grace we're saved and through faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And finally, the third, the gift of eternal life is bestowed upon the believer in Jesus Christ. Eternal life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Let's think of that. Heaven, eternal life, peace, eternal life, joy, eternal life. No no more death, no more disease, destruction, no more tears, no more disappointments, no more anxiety, no more funerals. Eternal life. We shall see him as he is. So two questions in closing. Have you personally answered that question? What must I do to be saved? And have you answered that question correctly? If you haven't, I implore you to do so. Follow the lead of the Philippian jailer. And those of us who have, do we like Paul and Silas? Do we seek opportunity to share the gospel? To have the answer for the one who asks, what must I do to be saved? We have to be ready at a moment's notice. We never know when our days are done. Where will we be in eternity? The Lord Jesus Christ? In his presence? To heaven? Or will we be destined for an eternity and separated from God forever? We're talking about hell. 
there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy answer, answered question. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let us pray. Our God, our Father, how grateful we are for the opportunity to open up your word today. And most importantly, how grateful we are for the way of salvation. A love that you had so great for us, you sent your dear son to die in in our place, to shed his precious blood on our behalf. We thank you for that great sacrifice. We thank you for his resurrection, because we serve a living God. He is alive and coming again. And help us, Father, to give the gospel, to seek out every opportunity to tell others about this wonderful gift of eternal life that you have, of the salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we thank and we praise you for it. We give you all the glory. We pray in our Savior's name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.